cricket last story with me, Neil Kagram. Today we're joined by BBC's Test Match special producer, Adam Mountford. Adam, how are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. It's all a bit strange at the moment, but uh, just looking forward as we speak, we've got cricket just over a couple of weeks away, so we're all hoping to uh, get back to some sort of normality. Yep, can't wait, can't wait. So um, just for the benefit of people that don't actually know, can you explain your role um, as the producer? Yeah, so I'm basically in charge of, um, actually not just Test Match Special, but effectively in charge of all the, the cricket coverage across BBC Radio. I also have some involvement now in some of the television and online services as well. I mean, one of the great joys of cricket on the BBC these days, it's really joined up multi-platform to use that. That's a famous phrase now. So, you know, you get the whole experience. But obviously the, the most interesting part of my job is, is producing Test Match Special and and that goes really from the whole whole of the programme, from putting together the budgets for how much it might cost to putting together the personnel for each each programme, doing a rotor every day to who's on uh, with each commentator, working out what goes in the intervals, um, you know, down to all that element, plus, you know, working with people on logistics, whether it's, you know, hotels or travel, that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I work in all, all sort of elements of the job, really, from, from the planning stage where you might look at a, a set of fixtures 12 months out, through to actually on the day I would sit there in the commentary box producing the programme and that as you say is sometimes it's rotors, it's thinking of intervals, it's helping the commentators creating a sort of environment for them to perform at their best but uh, yeah it's a sort of quite wide-ranging role and actually getting wider by the day as there's so many different ways of, of consuming cricket. So cricket, um, was it always a passion of yours from, uh, from a young age? Uh, absolutely yeah, From uh, I was hooked in 1981 so I was nine years old then um, and uh, yeah I just loved the excitement of Botham's Ashes in actual fact I was supporting Australia in 1981 which might uh, surprise a few people but my um, my brother my big brother was a big England cricket fan and I thought well he's my brother I've got to go for someone different so I went for Australia and that looked pretty good after the first test or so you know Australia were on top and we got to day three at Headingley and again Australia were doing well Kim Hughes was sort of a hero of mine I like to sort of golden locks and wonderful stroke play and then it all turned around and Ian Botham was the hero and everyone remembers that sort of series and I think that that whole summer hooked me to the game game of cricket and you know I, I was like a lot of youngsters I suppose I went from playing in the park playing in the back garden and then wanting to also to get involved in the broadcasting at all so I would sit I remember with an old fashion tape player with the cricket on in the background I was doing my own sort of commentary just, just, just my own purposes, really. Just because I, you know, I wanted to, to emulate those people I'd heard on the radio or on the television, and that was my my kind of love. And and I'm very fortunate that I my my great love cricket and radio, my two great loves, are encapsulated in the job that I now do, and I'm incredibly fortunate to have that. So you went to Warwick University, um, but you you studied history, if I'm correct in saying, not journalism. That would surprise many people. Um, you know, is that, but is it more important the experience you got there? I know you were involved in the radio side of things. Was it W963? Yeah, that, that, that's more, right. You know, just for budding journalists? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, mean, I would say that getting a, a sort of media qualification isn't necessarily the be all and end all. For me, um, history actually is quite a useful subject in actually doing what, what we do today. I mean, might say, why, why would that be? But I guess, you know, when I was studying at university, it was all about getting a big subject and trying to communicate it in a way that people could understand in an essay or a presentation or a dissertation, whatever it is. And 
pretty much that's what we do today with with broadcasting you know it's getting a massive subject like a, a test match and thinking how do you broadcast that how do you bring it alive for the audience in a sort of in a form that they, they can enjoy and I, I thought the two skills were similar but yeah when I went to university I although I say my sort of loves were, were radio and, and cricket I didn't really know I was going to become a broadcaster or a producer or that sort of thing um what happened was there was a university radio station as you mentioned W963 University Radio Warwick which had quite a few quite well-known people came through people like Simon Mayo and Stephen Merchant um Timmy Mallet would you believe was also a, a W963 alumni um and I remember quite vividly now actually um I was sort of getting into university quite enjoying it but I didn't really feel I knew my place um and I saw an advert in the, the newspaper the, the university newspaper which called the Warwick Ball and on it it said we're starting a sports program on the radio on our radio station I remember thinking that day you know this sounds perfect I love radio I love sport I'll go along and see what's going on if I really enjoy this gosh this could be something I really want to do and I, I have a distinct sort of memory of sitting in the in the studio and 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 you know speaking on the microphone talking about you know not just cricket but other sports and thinking this is this is brilliant and that absolutely I think at that moment I knew that's what I wanted to do and to be honest I spent much more time in the university radio station than I probably did in the lecture theatre but it, it sort of paid off in the end because it gave me a, a real focus what I wanted to do and, and also some contacts to be able to do it. Yeah, so then from there, didn't you get, um, you did a little bit of work initially with um, CWR, BBC CWR. Isn't there a little story somewhere in there where the producer was on holiday, you covered, then, then it wasn't, I don't know, some holiday, you got yeah, injured, yeah, no, and then no, you got the role? No, you're right. I mean, it was it was the literal big break because what happened was I worked. So I was working at the university radio station and at the local BBC station called CWR based in Coventry. They had a youth program called PDQ, which I'd go and help out on, on a Sunday. It was a Sunday evening program. And that was a brilliant experience working with lots of young people, uh, same age as me, same sort of ambitions, putting together a radio program that was broadcast on local radio every Sunday night. So it was a real, real program, but it was actually really carefully constructed lots of skills were learned whether it's broadcasting editing producing all that sort of stuff working a radio car and all those different things anyway i was working on that program and the editor of, of the radio station one evening came in to listen to the program and he said look we've got a big problem next week um the person who normally does our sports bulletins is going on holiday and we haven't actually got any cover is anyone here in this group who likes sports and i put my hand up and said well it's my my favorite thing i love sport and um, without sort of thinking back and thinking, this is actually my last week at university. So all my friends were out, you know, having a few drinks and enjoying, you know, the last week of, of life as a, as a student. And I was volunteering to get up at four o'clock in the morning to read sports bulletins on the local BBC service. Anyway, I was covering from this guy who was going on a skiing holiday. Anyway, at the end of the week, the manager came in and said, look, this guy, he's broken his leg on this skiing holiday. Can you stay on? And I said, well, yeah I, of course I can but of course it was, I'd actually left university and I had nowhere to stay or anything like that so I ended up staying in a hotel which was costing me more than I was getting paid to work on the, the station but I thought this is a great opportunity so yeah I started doing the sports bulletins and after a week or so they said look to be honest with you we reckon you're a better bet than the guy who's on his skiing holiday so we're going to give you give you the job so it was I felt terrible for him but it was a literal big break he, he, he breaks his leg I got the opportunity and I, and I was working in professional broadcasting in my first week after university and I was unbelievably fortunate. And then from there you met uh, Peter Baxter, the former producer of TMS. 
how was that kind of connection? I know you're you involved, you following Warwickshire around as well, um, but that connection key for your career? Yeah, I guess so. So what happened was, um, yeah, I got to work, as I say, at the BBC station in Coventry. I also worked a bit at WM, and between the two stations, they covered Warwickshire County Cleat Club. And it just so happened, this was 1993, 1994, when cricket fans might know that that was Warwickshire's incredible period, really. They won trophies in 93, but 94, they won a treble. A certain player called Brian Lara arrived at, uh, at Edgbaston, having just broken the record for the highest test score. In that summer, he scored 501, breaking the highest first-class score. Warwickshire were everywhere. They were national news. Um, and it meant that my first trip to Lords, I've never been before, was covering Warwickshire in a, in a Lords final commentating on it and it was there up in the turret um, at the pavilion that I met Peter Baxter and someone obviously I'd known about for years you know he started on TMS when I was aged just one I mean he's got incredible experience of producing TMS and I remember chatting to him and you know obviously thinking I think I know a bit about him from reading about him I had a chance to meet him and he's telling stories about oh yes I'm off to cover an England tour this winter yeah that's pretty much what I do I work on cricket full-time I get to travel the world to being a you know, a, a, a producer covering cricket, and I thought, oh, imagine that, you know, traveling the world, covering England at cricket, oh, you know, amazing. Um, and, and you wouldn't believe that 10 years or, yeah, roughly 10 years later, I was, I was doing the job, and that, that, you know, unbelievable fortune, really, that that sort of fell into place. But, yeah, certainly that experience of meeting Peter was, was pretty, pretty special and gave me a bit of an inspiration going forward. And then you're also involved in radio sport prior to getting that actual uh, um, involved in TMS. So you're involved in golf production, etc. Do you think uh, working on other sports is also important? Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, look, cricket was always my passion, but it, what was really good was I got a job. Basically, I was working in local radio. Then um, in 2000, sorry, not 1999, um, I had the opportunity to, I kept applying for jobs to work in London because I was quite keen to have a go at working in the sports room. You know, the BBC Radio Sports Room is one of the most famous sports organisations in the world in terms of radio, and something I obviously listened to, um, and had the chance to apply for a job. And I worked in the sports room just on general programmes, really. I, I worked on uh, sports bulletins. I worked on um, some producing. So I eventually got involved in Sports Week. I produced that for a while, which was like a magazine programme. And then I got the chance to work on golf initially as a assistant producer, and then as a sort of main producer and, and for me that was a great experience actually producing large outside broadcasts so I got to produce American majors the Masters and the Open US Open Open Championship in the UK and then the Ryder Cup as well and and that for me whatever sport it is it gave you a real opportunity to work in a big outside broadcast actually golf is far more complicated to produce than cricket is because of the the geography of it all you know you've got players out on a large course you've got to try and keep on top of all the action happening exactly the same time so you don't miss anything in fact cricket in some ways is much more straightforward because the action's out there in front of you but yeah absolutely I would say to anybody you know don't think I want to do cricket that's all I'm going to do having as wide an experience as you possibly can is great and I'm not just talking about sports but also genres whether it's working in broadcasting writing tv producing whatever it might be you know be as wide open as you can be as all-rounder as you can you can obviously specialize and it's good to specialize at some point but it's amazing that when you put yourself in forward of an employer if you could say well I can do that I can do that I can do that it really helps and for me what happened was in 2002 I just produced the Ryder Cup and they wanted someone to come in to work alongside Peter Baxter when 2020 cricket started uh, that summer because it was obviously a brand new competition 
they were going to broadcast on Five Live. They wanted to do it a bit differently, and they felt that Peter couldn't do that as well as Test Match Fresh and all, all of his other responsibilities. So I was, they wanted someone to take over that, and it just so happened I'd produced quite a successful um, outside broadcast for the Open Championship, and they, they said, well, what's your main sport? And I said, well, actually, it's cricket. And again, I obviously applied for the job, and because I'd had the experience of producing a big OB, it put me in a really good position to get that job. So yeah, back in 2002 was my first sort of involvement in, uh, in radio cricket. And then Peter Baxter retired um, in 2007. How was that feeling to, to kind of become then the lead producer? Yeah, look, it was intimidating. It was um, exciting. I mean, Peter had done the job for 34 years. So, I mean, it's extraordinary to take over a job that someone's occupied for so long. I had two advantages, really. One was I had an opportunity to work alongside him for five years. So what I did is I worked effectively as a five live cricket producer in charge of T20, but also able to work on some of the OBs with cricket. So I was looking after Pat Murphy doing the updates on five live and I got to do some producing abroad. So obviously Peter needed some breaks. So I had the opportunity in 2002-03 to go to an Ashes tour. So my first full day in cricket was actually at the MCG for the Boxing Day test. And that was a real pinch yourself moment. You know, walking out thinking this is, you know, this is my job now, you know, at this famous ground at this, you know, iconic sporting occasion, the Boxing Day test. But actually it gave me the chance that when I took over in 2007, I felt I knew everyone, I got, had the contacts, um, I knew how it worked. I'd have five years to work under Peach and that was brilliant. And the other advantage was that I was taking over a position of an incredible strength. You know, it wasn't like a, a football manager taking over a dodgy team um, that, that was struggling and the manager being sacked. I was taking over a, a team absolutely at the height of its powers, celebrating its 50th anniversary with I, iconic broadcasters, loved by its listeners. And that gave me a huge advantage. Yeah, it was intimidating because what you realise very quickly is that everything you do to do a test match special has immense scrutiny because people really care but isn't it wonderful to do a job where people care about what you do and that that for me was was really special and you mentioned uh, working abroad you said australia the the job looks glamorous um in terms of travel but it must also be difficult spending time away from home even in the uk going up and down the country difficult yeah, of course it is. Look, I, I'm, you, know, I, you never complain about the opportunity to follow England around the world. It's, it's, I'm, you know, I'm incredibly privileged to have the opportunity. But yes, of course, you know, I've got a young family and I'm aware that every time I go away for periods of time, you're missing birthdays, school events, anniversary, all that sort of thing. And, you know, it's very difficult for my wife and family to cope with me being away a lot. And that's the, the difficult time. And, and you do feel guilty a lot of the time, you know, your face... These, time, these days, I mean, it's different to when Peter was doing the job, when he was abroad a few years ago. He, he was allowed sort of one phone call a week. I mean, I can FaceTime kids and, and Skype and that sort of thing. There are ways of communicating. Well, yeah, of course you're away an awful long time. And, and working abroad has its challenges. You know, sometimes it's, you know, it, it, it works really well. And you get amazing chances and experiences to see the world. But sometimes working in some environments is deeply frustrating, technically challenging and stressful. And just getting a program on the air, frankly, an achievement, less than what's being broadcast on it. Yeah, so how is the team um, in terms of, uh, how does it split in terms of being at home and in a way? You must have more personnel, am I right in saying, more personnel working on the production side of things when in the UK, but abroad, do you have to, you know, muck in and stuff that you're perhaps less experienced in? How does it yeah, work? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so in uh, basically the cricket team at the moment, in radio terms, there's only 
sort of two full-time producers, myself and Henry Moran, um, who work in cricket. And we've got to cover, you know, all cricket. I'm not just talking about international cricket. We also take responsibility for county cricket, women's cricket, uh, all that different area as well, which we do so much commentary on these days. So there's a lot, a lot for us to keep an eye on. Um, but yeah, I'd say the difference between abroad and home particularly is that we also have some engineering support in the UK. So generally for games at grounds, we have people from the BBC outside broadcast team who help to put together the sound of a programme and technically how it works. But because of the costs of, of working abroad, when we do a test match overseas, generally we're on our own. So I will go to Australia or India or Sri Lanka, whatever, mainly on my own. And my job is to both produce, but also to engineer the programme. So that literally involves you know, carrying the equipment. I have a big red case that I take with me, you know, taking up, up the stairs myself up to the commerce position, taking all the plugs out, working out the power, seeing if the lines work, negotiating with the local authorities to what space you're in. Um, so you literally, from the start to finish of, a, of, of a, a tour game, you are responsible. So literally from dragging the case up to the stairs, you know, plugging everything in, working out what goes well, negotiating with the whoever's providing broadcast lines that you've obviously booked yourself in advance, you know, putting the equipment out, make sure it all works through to you're then responsible on the tour to getting the commentators to the commentary box. So, you know, getting them to so get the travel, that sort of situation, you know, working out how they're getting you fed, what times they're on doing the rotor to physically, you know, what's on the programme, getting guests and ideas. And then often on a tour as well, I do some of the broadcasting because, again, we have a much smaller team. So whereas in England, we have like an Eleanor Aldroyd who might do updates or Nick Ashwagani or those sort of people. Often when you're abroad, because there's a smaller team, I'll have to do some of the updates as well, which is which I don't mind doing. But inevitably, it means you're, you know, you're juggling all these different things. So look, it is, and I've got the experience, I've done this for, you know, almost 20 years of working abroad. So clearly, you know, I, I, I know what I'm doing, but every day there's a new challenge. And every day, you know, it's it's not straightforward working abroad. And and in some ways, it's it's more satisfying. If you can get a, a programme on the air in difficult circumstances, it's almost more satisfying than doing a test match in the UK. So times that have been disastrously gone wrong? Any times? Well, obviously not disastrously wrong, but no, um, yeah, look, there's been amazing challenges. I mean, I'll give you two examples. Um, one was actually my first full game in charge of TMS um, was actually in, in Sri Lanka, in Dambulla as a one-day international uh, there. And I, again, never worked in Sri Lanka. It was one of my favourite places to tour now. Um, but we were broadcasting, we arrived, and, and Dambulla is basically in the jungle in Sri Lanka. It really is in the heart of, of the country. Um, and we, we arrived the day before a one-day international, and I've been told there was some sort of broadcast line for us to broadcast from. Got in the commentary box, totally bare, nothing there at all. And I'm thinking, how are we going to get this out to England from here? Fortunately, what I had with me was a very small sort of satellite dish. Um, and I thought, well, if I can somehow manage to manoeuvre that to a position where I can get a signal, we might be able to broadcast. Anyway, comes the day of the game, and it's a day-night game. It's in the middle of the jungle. There's obviously enormous floodlights. It's really hot. I've got my shorts on. It's really hot. And I realised the only way I can get a signal for the satellite to pick up to be able to broadcast is I have to physically hold the satellite at an angle. I can't put it down anywhere. I've got to hold it. So I've got my hands out holding this satellite for the whole of this one day international. Now, of course, because it's a day nighter and it's in Dambulla and the floodlights are on, there are literally millions of bugs. I mean, the, the whole jungle worth of bugs have come down. So my legs have been bitten to smithereens and I'm holding this satellite dish up to be able to broadcast. 
And in my mind, when I had a vision of what being a test match special a producer would be like abroad, it wasn't necessarily that. It was sort of sitting back, you know, and drinking a, you know, a, a pina colada, you know, enjoying the, the cricket in the background, you know, relaxing. And there I was being bitten to smithereens, holding this satellite. Fortunately, England were monumentally bad that day. It was actually Andrew Strauss's England debut. It was all over in a matter of hours. So we managed to get through it. But I, that was a, a real challenge. And then I had another one in um, Abu Dhabi, sorry, in Dubai, rather, in the United Arab Emirates, when, again, all our broadcast lines went down and we ended up having to broadcast the whole of Test Match special on an iPad, um, which, again, wasn't necessarily what we planned. Um, but, yeah, I, I guess, you know, one of your great thoughts are if you've got a, a challenge, a technical challenge abroad, if you can get through it, you know, you've achieved anything. There's only one time, only one time I think like, we totally failed. We're in Karachi, one of the last chances I guess England were in, in Pakistan, doing a one-day international. And I'd, I'd done everything to get it to make sure we had everything covered. We had these high-quality broadcast lines called ISDN lines. They were there. We had a satellite backup. We had a, a, a phone line and we had mobile phones. I'm thinking I've got all these different methods to broadcast. We start the program in Karachi. The broadcasting's going fine. Um, first of all, the ISGN line fails. Well, never mind. We'll, we'll go onto the, onto the satellite. Looked on the satellite. Signal wouldn't work. Thought, okay, I'll phone the studio, say we've got a problem. Went to the landline, looked it up. No dialing tone. Thought, okay, so I'll go to the mobile, pick the mobile up. No network coverage. And I looked and thought, there's nothing I can do. So you've also worked with... Um you know, some great broadcasters, um, talking like Jonathan Agnew, Henry Blofeld, etc., Jeff Boycott. You know, word about the characters and any any stories that kind of stand out in your mind? Yeah, look, I, I'm, again, incredibly privileged to work with people who are heroes, cricketing heroes, some of them, some of them broadcast heroes. And, and again, I talked about being intimidated a bit is because you're, you're dealing, you're working with people who are not just great cricket broadcasters they're great broadcasters I think people like Jonathan Agnew is one of you know the UK's finest broadcasters full stop so yeah I mean amazing and what I'd say about someone like uh, Henry Blofeld or the Jeff Boycott is that they are exactly as you hear them on the radio there is absolutely nothing different you know you meet Henry Blofeld for the first time it is my dear old thing um, within seconds um, and you know and he is one of the great characters and you are, you've been touched by a chance to work with these people. Jeff Boycott's like, I mean, one example, I gave that Karachi, Karachi story. And this reflects well on Jeffrey, actually, because sometimes, you know, you get the image of him as being a bit of a tyrant because um, he certainly speaks his mind. And there's been occasions like that. But, you know, he has got a softer side. And in fact, that day in Karachi, when all the lines were and everything else, it was my first tour working with, with Jeff Boycott. And I thought, he's going to think, who's this Muppet? You know, who's this guy who's, you know, come to do TMS? He doesn't know what he's doing. And I remember the day, really panicking, couldn't get it working. And he turned to me and said, listen, you're doing everything you can. Don't worry. And actually, that really relaxed me because I thought, well, you know, if Jeff Boycott's not annoyed with how my incompetence, then, you know, frankly, I must, I must be doing all right. And we managed to get back on the air. So, yeah, he's, um, you know, he's someone who's obviously, you know, a real huge character. But, uh, but definitely, you know, somebody has got a different, different side to them. But, yeah, generally, larger than life, brilliant characters, huge personalities. Um, I'll give you one sort of thing about Phil Tufnell, who, again, is one of the great characters in TMS. And, again, you'd imagine from him this sort of, you know, larrikin type kind of character. You know, he'd always be turning up late and lazy, that sort of thing. But that's the opposite of Tufnell. He's incredibly hardworking. He hates being late. In fact, never is. He, you know, if he even thinks he's got a moment of any trouble being late, he'll phone you up in advance, he'll warn you. You know, he's very punctual, very dedicated. And, again, perhaps different to the persona you'd imagine. 
And then when it comes to actually a, a game, you, you're the one actually puts a roster of the, the broadcasters together. Is there a time where um, you've, had, you've looked at a list of, of broadcasters and I thought, you know, it's difficult to leave one out? Has there been an, an uncomfortable moment for you? Oh, every, every time you do a rotor, to be honest, um, is difficult because we, are, we have an amazingly talented group of broadcasters and summarizers on TMS and I can't use them all the time. So yeah, every single time I, I, I feel frustrated and guilty that you can't have everyone, everyone in. And also you become quickly aware it's a bit subjective, isn't it? A lot of people, you put, I'll often publicize on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, a commentary team, and you realize, you know that within seconds you will have a whole list of people saying, have you left out this person? They're my favorite. You know, I, I can't believe you used them. They're terrible. You know, you, you know that it's a bit like a family, EMS. And, and if you leave out a member of the team, it's like losing a member of your family. So if someone moves on from the team, you know, and particularly when someone passes on like a Tony Kozier or a CMJ, you know, it's not just a bereavement in their families and the cricket family, it's people's family listening at home. You know, it's really difficult. So every time I leave out someone from the commentary team, you realise the effect it has on people's week. You know, they really love to hear certain people. So yeah, it's incredibly difficult um, to keep everyone in. And I'm, you know, it's, it's the thing that literally keeps me awake at night. And certainly on the morning, I mean, what a good example, the World Cup final morning, you know, an incredible day, but I just felt terribly guilty because we'd have this amazing team we brought together commentary throughout the course of that World Cup and I could only have certain people in the commentary team so people like Charles Dagnall, Alison Mitchell, Daniel Norcross had all been part of the team throughout. I couldn't fit him in on the commentary team and I felt terrible. I wrote to them in the morning of the game and said look you know this this is your day as much as the people there you're re you know we are representing you because this is a full team tournament we've done and you've and you've all made a massive contribution to this. And I feel terrible you can't be there on the day, but you know, you're with us on the day. And that's that's how you feel. You know, you wanna you'd love to have them all, all the time. And then what's the best game that you've uh been involved in? <laughs> well, that's a difficult one. Um, but I think I'm fortunate that a lot of the most amazing action has happened in the last 12 months. I mean, there are probably there is there are a few times I I suppose I slightly judge it by how much I've cried at the game because I don't often cry an awful lot of things, but sometimes the emotion of, of a cricket occasion and some of it's a bit weird like I remember crying at Henry Blofeld's last commentary it wasn't particularly I wasn't thinking oh my gosh you're not going to see you again but it was just such an amazing moment with his standing ovation at Lords. but as an actual cricketing event I'd say the Women's World Cup final 2017 was really special it was an amazing game of cricket in itself but also because that we knew, got a feeling very quickly that the day really mattered you know it was a very different audience there both at the ground and listening and he felt the importance of that day and then I suppose you've got Headingley last year the Ben Stokes day and you've got the World Cup final and it's difficult to almost separate those two um, I suppose if I had to say my favourite I'd just about go Headingley because the, the men's World Cup final at Lords was an amazing climax super over and that sort of thing but I didn't really enjoy the day because it was just so unbelievably tense all day long because again you felt there was just so much riding on it. So there was so much planning and organisation. We knew from a sort of our point of view, you know, what it would mean for England to win the World Cup, let alone what it meant for English cricket. So I think, you know, obviously looking back on in hindsight, incredible memories of that day, but did I enjoy it? Probably not. Whereas Headingley, it was so unexpected, really. You know, you, we turned up at the day, it was a sort of, look, we've had an amazing summer. You know, we had the World Cup final. Nothing can live up to that. So let's just get through this game, you know, whatever. We'll do the best job we can. And then as the day grew, the narrative grew, you suddenly sense something amazing is going to happen. 
Um, and there was a moment when, so we had Jim Maxwell commentating because it felt like Australia were going to win. And there was just a moment, Ben Stokes was getting towards 100. And I thought, you know, I've got a feeling about this. I've just got a feeling the momentum is shifting. And I said to Agus, look, you go on. And he said, what do you mean? He said, no, you go on. I really think it's going to happen. So we made sure that we had an Australian representative with Ben McGrath and, and Alistair Cook was on with him. And we had that incredible finish. And certainly, again, there were some tears and some rather embarrassing faces from me at the back of the commentary box that got caught on camera looking like a sort of a goldfish. And, and that, that's what we felt like. It was just a day of total unexpected, but also just unmitigated joy from an England fan that it's difficult to replicate or remember anything as special as that. And then one final uh, question just to end on. Um, in your opinion, is there opportunities for youngsters wanting to get into cricket from a journalist perspective? And oh. what's the one piece of advice that you'd give? To totally. Yeah, look, I'm always looking for new talent. But that's the one thing I'm probably more proud of on TMS than anything else is bringing through new broadcasters. You know, that's why I'm, I, I enjoy the most. You know, um, I was very fortunate to work with people like Isha Guha, Alison Mitchell, Ebony Rainford, Brent. I managed to help bring through them in their, in their careers. Now you turn on the TV or radio anywhere in the world and they're, they're, they're key broadcasters. And that's wonderful to see those sort of people coming through. Um, and some people contact Alison's a good example. She contacted me said she was interested in getting involved. We've managed to create opportunities and she's taken it fantastically well. So absolutely, I'd say to people, you know, what I, I think showing initiative is always good and it's getting that balance between persistence and annoyance. So what you do is you, you know, you show some initiative, whether it's, you know, recording some commentary off the telly, sending it to me and then following us up with an email, not, not bombarding people with it. And that's the same with all sorts of people, you know, we're obviously busy, but we're always looking for new talent. We don't want to be rude to people. We want to give people opportunities, but you can't always, sometimes it takes some time to get back to people. But yeah, I'd say, you know, show initiatives. So whether it's, you know, putting together a, you know, a, a YouTube channel or you're putting together a, a, a mock recording or a website piece, whatever, show you've done something, you can do it on your own. Um, gain as many skills as you can. I say being an all-rounder, look at a cricket team. The all-rounder's the one everyone wants. You want your Ben Stokes, you want your, your Andrew Flintoff. These are the characters that do well, and that's very much the same in broadcasting. You, you know, arm yourself with as many skills as you can, and that will make you easy to employ, and then be flexible. So if you have an opportunity, absolutely grab it with both hands. You know, and it's amazing how that will open up, because suddenly when you're looking for people for future opportunities, you know that person, you know that you can trust them and like them. So, you know, that, that's my main advice. Yes, I'd say there is absolutely the chance. I remember you know, at a school's careers um, event saying, you know, I want to get involved in broadcast, that sort of thing. And someone's saying, look, you know, lovely, but it doesn't happen. Those opportunities don't really exist for many people. And I would say the opposite to people. If you really, really want to do it, if you really believe you really want to do it and can do it, go for it. Because, you know, I'm, I'm you know, I often think I've got the best job in the world. I get to listen to my favourite radio programme. I get to watch the cricket in, in front of me with a constant supply of cake. And that, for me, is a dream job. And, and it's certainly possible for people to follow their dreams and to get the opportunities that they can. Put in the hard work, put in the perseverance, arm yourself with skills. But if you do that, you've definitely got a chance. Perfect, Adam. I uh, really appreciate your time. Uh, fantastic insight into your career and some, also some great advice you've just given as well. So thank you very much. Really good to speak to you and all the best with all the other programmes you're doing. Perfect. So Neil Kagram, Cricket Last Ways, Anna Mountford. Thank you.